I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 161 of the Intercooler podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Now this week we are talking about the Porsche 911 in racing. Um, it's a good time to do it and I'll explain why in the main episode. Um, this year, as we know, in September, that will be the 60th anniversary of the Porsche 911, which is why um, over a handful of episodes this year we're marking the occasion um, by talking about the 911. A few weeks ago, in episode 154, we covered the early cars, the air-cooled road cars. Um, a bit later on, in a few weeks, we'll do the water-cooled road cars. But this week, we're talking about the 911 in motorsport. Plenty to get our teeth into. Um, before we get started, please rate and review the podcast if you can. Um, we really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And while you're doing it, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button on whichever app you use. That really helps us. It actually helps us to find a bigger audience and do more with the podcast. So please do that uh, and enjoy the episode. In some ways, we've painted ourselves into a corner here, Andrew, trying to tell the story of the 911 in motorsport in a single episode. Uh, it's just not going to happen, is it? I th- because it is... I haven't been able to back this up with any data this morning, but it is the world's most successful racing car, isn't it? You don't need any data. Um... I mean, just, no. just ask yourself, what, what possible car yeah. could rival it? Yeah. You know. And, and the point is, so we know the 911 model line has been around for 60 years now. Yeah. Um, and it's not just been competing in sprint racing, or it's not just been competing in endurance racing. The story of the 911 racing is really one of variety, isn't it? Long distance racing, sprint racing, rallying, rally cross, every um, corner of the planet for decades now. It's, it's just, there's so much it, to say. It's, it, yeah, and, and, and I, guess the, I guess the point to start with is that, you know, it's not as if this car was designed from the outset to be a racing car. This no. isn't some, you know, sort of racetrack refugee, which they bolt us a number plates onto. You know, as we know, the car made its debut at the Frankfurt Motor Show in 1963. Porsche didn't build the competition derivative of it, or they didn't get round to it until sort of 67, 68. 
So it had mm. already been around for you know most of what people would consider to be a life cycle before Porsche even bothered to go racing with it. Now others had gone race both racing and rallying with it, but they were private cars. Um, and yet, despite all that, it just went on to be. I mean, I've just been looking at you know a few areas of competition in which it got involved, and there are periods of dominance which are so simply astonishing that if you didn't have a 911 or a 911 derivative like a 934 or a 935 there seemed to be genuinely very little point even showing up <laughs> um it is amazing isn't it it is amazing so um, so, so, so what do what why do we think this is is it yeah is it that that's configuration that unique configuration with a, a flat six engine slung out behind the rear wheels which is in scientific physical terms appears to be so flawed is that some kind of magical solution or is it that porsche just engineered it better than anybody else or just made cars more available than anybody than anybody else um were they just more into it than anybody else did they think harder clever better than anybody else is it a combination of i don't know i don't really know why it is i mean mm. there are clearly certain advantages you get with having your engine um back there and maybe we'll get into those later but but ultimately i think it's as much if i'm honest with you down to the company and its approach to racing um, and just the mm. rigor and the intelligence with which they went about everything that they did, um, that to me is the key to success. And, and, and obviously what we also know, don't we, is that nothing succeeds like success. And once you have hit upon a formula that works and customers pile in, unless you give them a reason to go somewhere else, they're going to keep coming back. Mm. Um, so That's I think right. really, actually, I think, the 911 is like the vessel. I think it is the means by which the exceptional standards with which Porsche approached, you know, all competitive forms of competition is expressed. I think it's just Porsche deciding to do something better than anybody else, and the 911 was the tool it happened to have, knocking about at the time with which to do it. And I think that yes. was the, that yeah. was the same in the late 60s. And I think, frankly, uh, it was the same right up to. You know, I, what, last year when the you know the RSR nineteen won won its class at Le Mans um, and has now been retired. Mm. Yeah, you're quite right. It, I mean, it took, as you say, it took years of took Porsche a few years to get going with the nine eleven in motorsport. But once it did so, um, and actually once it had established itself in racing, Porsche has been utterly committed, unwavering in its commitment. Others think Mercedes Benz. You know, mm. so many other brands, they come and go. They, they dip, dip in, in and out of yeah. racing as and when it suits them. Porsche, in across different categories, different disciplines, has been there consistently, almost since day one, well before the 911. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's like Ferrari in Formula One. You know, they, yeah, they, they have always been there. Except I guess the difference is, is that Porsche have been there for 60 years with the same car. Um, yeah, and, and use that car... To do everything from, you know, there's not a major sports car race in the world that a 911 or a derivative thereof has not won. Mm, and yet it's also won the Monte Carlo Rally. Mm. I mean, it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. And, 
and the Dakar Rally. We'll come uh, on the to Dakar that. Rally. How, and, you how know, diverse and are these motorsport disciplines? And yet, somehow, the 911 has been able to win in all of them. It is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Now, we're recording this on the 12th of May. It's a Friday. It is. The 13th of May will be precisely 50 years to the day since the 911 Carrera RSR won the Targa Florio in 1973. Ah, there you um, go. So by the time anybody a, listens to this, it will have happened. Yeah, yeah. It will have happened. Um, and to mark the occasion on the Intercooler app and website, we've published a two-part story, which I'm deeply proud of. I think it's fantastic. I would say that. Um, in the first part, Andrew writes about um, the Carrera RSR, its gestation, um, that Targa in 1973, and actually particularly the restoration of that particular car, R6 they call it, yeah. because in 2018 it's comprehensively restored by Max Did Page. And um, it's a great tale. So that story is on there. And we followed it up with part two, written... And this is, I think, maybe the coolest thing we've ever done, potentially. Mel Nichols was there in 1973 to watch the Carrera RSR win the target. He was there. So he's written a wonderful piece about his experience of being on that event. It's and a, in that same article... Know. It's a great piece, isn't it? Well, it is. I, sorry, just before you get on to the other half of the, of the same article, you know, it, there will be people who, who listen to this who will remember Mel's wonderful writing in Car in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, you know, half a century on from that Targa Flory, just go and read what he wrote for us. Um, mm. on the, and, and if you're worried that whatever your talent is, you might lose it you know, because you know, you're, you're 50 years older than you once were. Um, well, you might, but Mel hasn't. No, and he writes. He has not. It's just the most beautifully evocative piece of writing, so superbly crafted. Um, you know, so much atmosphere without ever becoming sort of florid or overblown. It's uh, it's, it's mm. it really is a masterly piece of work. Sorry, and it is. And then in in the the second part of the same article. Karun Chandok drives R6, the car, the very car that yeah. won the Targa Florio 50 years ago. Um, he thrashes the thing around Goodwood um, and writes about his experience doing that. So I just think, how cool is that? We've got this story um, from a guy who was there on the day, followed up by one of our guys driving the very car. And this is why it's so great having a team of writers like we do um, not just because they're great writers, but because of the things they have done and the things yeah, that they exactly. get to do. Yeah, exactly. And to have, you know, in the same story, you know, two writers who are so exceptionally well-suited to telling their sides of the story for such dramatically different reasons. You mm. know, Karun, because he is, you know, he's a superb, you know, Formula One driver and a fantastic communicator. And Mel, because he was there half a century ago. And you yeah. know, there's nothing like, you know, the trackside view, is there? No. No, there isn't. There isn't. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really proud of that two-part story. Um, and I, I hope if you go and read it now, you enjoy it. Um, okay, so let's get back to the, the 9-11 then. Yeah. Um, let's go all the way back to the early years. Now, I don't know if, you're, if you'll take issue with this claim, but it looks as though in January 1965, and remember, this is within a year and a half of the 9-11 making its debut at Frankfurt. That was the first time a 9-11 entered a motorsport event. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. It was the Monte Carlo Rally yeah. with Herbert Linger and yeah. Peter Falk. Yeah. Um, and they, they weren't really supposed to be competing in the event. Porsche just wanted its car in Monaco on the world stage. Yes. 
um, for the world to see. But it's, um, just, just so this doesn't sound inconsistent with what I said earlier, this wasn't a competition car that you know no. that, that Porsche had produced for that. It was a 911. Um, mm. And I mean, I, I, well, sorry, sorry go, go, go on because I, I, I have a I yeah. have dug out a fact about that particular event, which um, okay. to me speaks for everything you know about the 911. But go on. Herbert Linger being Herbert Linger. And actually, I, I've, I met the bloke years ago. I wrote a story about him. He is a fascinating guy. Yeah. Um, I think he was... One of the great unsung heroes of Porsche. One of the first employees of Porsche. It was him. He's from Weissach. It was him who said, build your test track and your R&D facility here. Um, it was him who... Uh, he was involved in the Steve McQueen film, wasn't he? He did some of the driving for that. Um, and it was him who first drove a 911 in competition. And he was a great driver. And, of course, he wasn't just going to pookle along and make sure the car got to Monaco without any damage. Um, He wanted to show what the thing can do. And he came fifth. Fifth on the Monty, which is just fantastic. Not only did he came fifth, he won his class. And and, and what I was going to say is the Monty that year was so grueling, it was so tough, that, he said, reaching frantically for his notes, there were 237 cars entered it, 22 finished it. <laughs> Less than 10%. Less than 10%. <laughs> yeah. And one of those was a 911. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, now that we're on the theme of rallying, I think we should just stick with this for a little bit and we'll come to circuit racing a bit later on. Yeah. Um, but that Monty in 1965, Herbert Linger, perhaps, perhaps inspired a chap called Vic Elford. <laughs> we know Vic Elford well, don't we? And it was... He saw um, 911s being used privately, mostly, in rallying, and he spotted some potential in the car. He thought, I reckon this thing could be competitive. At this time, Porsche had no plans to be involved in rallying. It, um, you know, it did that Monty in 65 as a one-off just to show the car off, not really intending to be competitive in that event. Um, there was no budget for rallying, no team um, but Elford nevertheless persuaded Porsche to lend him a car for the 1966 Tour de Course right at the end of the year. Um, and he finished third. Now, Vic was, before the event, well aware, well aware of the 911's reputation. That's something we've discussed in the past, isn't it? Um, and there's this lovely quote for him from him. I spent the 24 hours of the rally of 10,000 corners, that's what the Tour de Course is known as, learning to drive a 911 and discovered that the monster was a myth that asked only to be understood, coaxed, and gently seduced into doing the right things. Um, so he found that if he drove the car in the right way, it, it could be wonderful and it could be competitive, and he finished third. Um, he says the logical next step was the Monte Carlo, only a couple of months later. Um, again, no real support from the factory, but they gave him a car. And he says, after two weeks of reconnaissance, recce, The 911 had no secrets for me. I was right. It was the car of the future. And no matter what the conditions, wet, dry, snow or ice, it was capable of doing everything better than any other car I had driven. We led virtually the whole way until going over the Col de Turini for the last time when the snow came out of nowhere and I was caught on the wrong tyres, dropping to third uh, behind Alancia Fulvia and Amini. He did finish third. Um, But it goes on. This, it, this, the Monty was a, an enormous global event back then. It really was a huge deal. Um, and the 911 finished third, Vic Elford driving, um, and it was suddenly thrown into the spotlight. 
Now, we, this is a month later, February, um, and ITV, the British broadcaster, stages the first rally cross event at Lydon Hill um, in Kent. Uh, rally cross, as we know, it's, they use purpose-built racetracks, but they build a, the sort of fiddly gravel section so that you're using part of the racetrack and then a gravel section, so you've got split surfaces, um, and you're racing wheel-to-wheel, door-to-door. Um, and Vic says... Since the 911i had jumped into the headlines almost over, overnight, ITV insisted that I find one in which to do the event. He borrowed just a standard road car from the British importer. Well, it was um, the, um, it was AFN's demonstrator. Yeah, it was. That's it right. was just about the, the first 911 into the country. One of the first, yeah. right hand, and it was a completely bog standard car. I might have driven yeah. it. Oh, really? Okay, well, <laughs> hold that thought. Um, it was. It's a red car. GVB 911D was the yep. registration plate. Very famous car now. Um, and apart from big knobbly tyres, it's just a standard road car. And there's a great pick of it um, at Lydon Hill, this first rally, ever rallycross event, um, rubbing door handles with a Cortina, Elford driving. And of course, he goes and wins the thing. Um, first ever rallycross event in, yeah. a, in a st- then, standard road car. And that Porsche clearly thrilled with all of this. Third on the Monte, won this thing called rallycross. And so they start creating a small rally department with Elford as its driver. They won the 1967 European Rally Championship in a 911 with three wins. <laughs> a year later, well, at, uh, the next year, at the start of 1968, Monte, uh, the Monte Carlo Rally, Elford goes and wins it in a 911S, two litre. Oh, um, uh, sorry, I might have to pick you up on that. Oh, go on. I don't think it was an S. Was it? I think it was a T. Like and and, this, and, and okay. the only reason I mention it is not to sound like a smart ass, but to provide a little insight into what I was talking about earlier about the way that Porsche go racing or competing. Um, Come on. Because my understanding is they had the S, which was mm. faster than everything else, but that was an irrelevance because you could tune these things up anyway. Um, but what they wanted to do was to homologate their rally car around the very lightest 911 they had which was the cut spec, poverty spec, 911T. And it was light, but mm. just because they'd taken everything off it. Uh, and so the lightest car they had was the 911T. And so that's the car that they put forward to be their competition car. And by the time it actually went on to the, um, the Monty, it was, you know, it was so tuned up, it was massively faster than anything else they ever had. But I just love that thinking that, you know, you think, oh, yeah, we use 9 11 because that's our faster one. They go, no, let's not do that. Let's use our slowest one because it's mm. also our lightest one and then recover the performance. Mm. And that's yeah, what that's it was. Great, isn't it? Yeah. There you go. And then Bjorn Valdegard won the, the Monty the next two years yeah. in a 911. Um, Porsche owes Vic Elford a huge <laughs> debt of gratitude for all the 911 achieved in rallying. This is, remember, the car's not even. Uh, six or seven years old at this point. And so everything that it achieved in the European Rally Championship on the Monte Carlo Rally will have done wonders for the 911's reputation for its standing as a sports car. Yeah. But I mean, presumably, in the world of rallying and before the era of four-wheel drive, um, you know, if, if we ask ourselves why four-wheel drive transformed rallying in the 1980s, uh, one word, isn't it? It's traction. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that surprising no, that a car no. which has got legendary tractive properties because its engine's in the wrong place comes along and does much the same thing in the late 1960s. It was mm. just 
although I'm sure that Porsche never even thought about it when they were designing it, it was just so brilliantly suited to loose surfaces. Mm. Yeah, and it was it, it was therefore quick, but also a nimble, agile car, good power, um, still quite little. So yeah, no wonder it's basically on pretty indestructible. Yeah, tough. tough yeah, really tough. Um, okay, we'll come on to circuit racing. I'll just quickly whip through the rest of the rallying stuff that I want to talk about. 1984, um, Porsche won the Dakar with the 953, which was a heavily modified 911 variant. Um, it was designed specifically for the Dakar, but really as a precursor to the 959, wasn't it? It was kind of an experimental car first to learn about the Dakar. First four-wheel drive Porsche. Yeah, it had a four-wheel drive system. And it was, it was, Porsche was trying, was, had this program um, to try and win the Dakar, and the plan was to win it with the 959. Um, but it entered in 1984 with this thing called the 953 um, and just went and won it. Yeah. Uh, perhaps for some of the reasons we've discussed. And, and it had four-wheel drive, but it wasn't like a sort of, you know, like almost like a sort of silhouette. It was a, it was a mildly modified um, 911. In fact, it had the engine in it. It was actually detuned from a standard because mm. um, some of the fuel it was going to have to run on in, in Africa was so dodgy. Um, that they had to knock back the compression ratio and everything else to cope with it. So it's not as if they just went and created this bespoke rally car out of nowhere and just made it look like a 911. It was a mm. 911. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. And then, of course, in 1986, the 959 did win the Monte. Yeah, no, Dakar, excuse me. Um, so it's just fantastic, isn't it? This thing was never, ever, ever supposed to be a rally car, but it has won some of the biggest rallying events in the world. It says a lot about the 911. It does. It does. Should we talk racing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so difficult to know where to start with it. I mean, it we've discussed the 911R and the Marathon Della route. Uh, the 911R mm. being, I suppose, the first purpose-built competition 911 that the factory, you know, sort of created. Um, weighed 830 kilos. That's where, you know, ideas like the obsession for lightweighting, the detail where... Instead of having a badge on the front of the car, you just have a sticker. And if you look mm. at the front of a GT3 RS today, it's got a sticker rather than a badge. And that is, you know, they may say a few, save a few grams that way, but really it's just a homage to the original 911R. And Vic Alford um, went with some other people and won this 84-hour race at the Nürburgring, which we've discussed before. It then went and set a series of speed records at Monza, including one for 96 hours. This ran a 911R flat out for 96 hours around Monza, and it was completely fine. Uh, and, you know, that kind of, you know, set the tone. By this stage, um, the sort of GT categories at Le Mans were absolutely awash with 911s because people, so people realised that if you want to, you know, have a car which is reasonably affordable is just going to get round um, and look after you and everything else. And a 911 was just so much better than anything else, um, particularly because of the reliability. You know, you could have gone in, in in almost any other kind of car, and it was always going to be. A, it was always a bit of a you know, will it, won't it survive? 911s, um, unless you did something really stupid like crash them or over rev them or you know anything like that. They, they just go around and they just keep on going around until the flag fell. Um, and that was, you know, another, such an important facet of the extraordinary success of this car. Because if you're a, 
if you're a customer and it's your own money, you're just not going to buy a car which, you know, might be quick enough to do quite well, you know, if fingers crossed it lasts. You know, the first thing you want and, you know, and having, you know, race cars um, with, you know, a lot of um, quite sort of wealthy amateur drivers, you know, the first thing they want to do is to finish the race. Mm. You know, where you finish is, um, is secondary to that, particularly in long distance racing. Um, and, I, and, and I've done a bit of that. You just want to be there at the end because, you know, would you rather come eighth and finish or, you know, be in second or third place when the car breaks with half the race still to go? Well, there's no contest. Um, mm. So I think that's a really, really um, important dimension to to the 9-11 story. But I guess it really, really gets going, doesn't it, in the early 1970s. Now, if you remember, this is when Porsche had been, you know, winning everything at the top level with the 917. Um, so much so that the rulemakers decided that um, that couldn't go on. A, nobody else was getting a look in, but B, those cars were getting so fast, um, they were genuine safety concerns even about that. So they... They basically, at the end of 1971, they outlawed the 917 by saying, by banning cars with uh, more than three litre capacity. Um, Porsche only had the 908, which is an old car by, by that stage, dating back to um, 1967, I think, certainly 68. Um, and they also, there was this feeling at the time that these prototypes were all fine, but they didn't look like anything that people could buy. Um, and that they wanted to go racing, even if it was only for sort of class honours, with something which directly related to the product. And so that resulted in the 2.7 RS, the legendary 2.7 yeah. RS Carrera, um, which itself was the car that homologated the 2.8 RSR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, R6, that car we were talking about earlier, um, which won the Targa Florio, um, that was a 2.8 RSR. Um, and in 1973, that road car, you know, in a championship, was still allowed three litre pure prototypes. It won Daytona, it won Sebring, it won the Targa Florio. I mean, it is, it's it's, it's unbelievable, really. Um, mm. And then the RSR went on to dominate uh, GT category racing for years and years and years. I mean. I don't know how many occasions it didn't win, but just you know, if there were RSLs there, um, you, you were you know you weren't going to win it if you weren't in one. Uh, and then in 1974 came the RSR Turbo, again a 911, a road car 911, and it came second at Le Mans in 1974, <laughs> beaten by it split the factory matcha prototypes, which were basically, and I mean this most sincerely, Formula One cars with enclosed bodywork. That's what they were. Wow. They had they had the same engine they used in Formula One cars. They were so extreme; those cars, they were like fighter planes. And here comes this this nine eleven, um, this Porsche road car, and splits them. I think there's a story that actually, and I don't know if this is true. I, I like to think it's true. There's a story that the matcher which was leading one of its drivers stuck it in a sand trap, and Porsche helped di- help them dig it out. Um, and had they not done that, then the Porsche would have won the race outright. Mm. And, and, and the reason I'm told that this happened was because the matcher that Porsche built the gearbox for it, for it or something. So they had a vested interest in that. I'm uh-huh. not sure whether that's true or not, but I kind of hope it is. Um, and then the RSR, you know, began the 934. 
um, which begat the 935. And the 935 is another... Okay, to, to give you an idea of... I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about when I say 935. It's basically, it's a 911 with that sort of droop snoot nose, that very aerodynamic yeah. nose. And it raced in Group 5. Um, and it started out in uh, 1976 with about 530 horsepower. And by the end of the decade, well, they created one called Moby Dick, which had 845 horsepower. Um, and was, again, this 911-based car was the fastest car um, down the straight at Le Mans. It was recorded at 227 miles an hour. Um, and frankly, the only reason it didn't, didn't win the race, it, it, it was so heavy on fuel and tyres and everything else. I think it had to stop something like 43 times during the course of those. Basically, it was stopping every <laughs> half an hour. Um, and that kind, of, that kind of held it back. But and I, I did look this up because I had a, there was something in my mind that said there was some extraordinary 935 statistic. So I looked it up. So the 935 between 76 and 79 won 150 major motor races. In the DRM, which was the forerunner of the DTM, you know, the German Touring Car Championship, mm-hmm. for three seasons, 1977, 1978, 1979, it won every single race. <laughs> oh, my God. Every single race. In fact, there were a number of races in which every single entrant was either a 935, a 934, or an RSR. Blimey. Blimey. Now, that is dominance, isn't it? Dominance of a kind... I'm, you know, I, I can't think of any other car over such a prolonged period. Because even if we think about, you know, the great Group C era of Porsches and 956s and 962s, you know, they were occasionally caught out. You know, a Lancia would come along and you know, nip an odd race here and there. You know, um, the 917s, uh, you know, on tighter circuits, you know, Alpha might win a race, you know, Ferrari um, won Sebring in 1970. But, you know, but those RSRs, they won literally everything. Sorry, yeah. on the 935s, the 934s. Um, I don't know another racing car which um, achieved such dominance over such an extraordinary long period of time. And, of course, it also won Le Mans. Yeah, I was going to say, but just once? Yeah. Well, no, twice. Yeah. Well, twice, really. It depends, well, it depends what you mean by a 911. So, or, or, well, <laughs> so, nine, so in 1979, uh, the Whittington brothers, who I think both went to prison in the end um, for drug dealing, um, and I think sharing with Klaus Ludwig, they won in a 935. What everybody remembers is one of the ble- people who were driving the 935 that came second who was Paul Newman, movie star mm. Paul Newman, mm. um, who did an incredible job. It was the first time, and I think it was actually ended up being the only time because he hated the experience so much because um, he, he just didn't want to be a movie star abroad and you know, everybody was in his face all the time. So he came over in a, and he, drove, he shared a 935 with Dick Barber and Ross Stommelen, who were both extremely accomplished racing drivers. He did every bit as much... Um, of his fair shares of the races, the other two, unlike, for instance, Steve McQueen at Sebring in 1970, who did the absolute bare minimum and just took all the credit for coming second in that. Um, so he was out there in a 935 with ridiculous power, unbelievably spiky car, unbelievably tricky car to drive, in the middle of the night, in the pouring rain, because it was a very wet one that year. Um, and the only comment he had to make after it was, I don't think my driving was that good this year. 
<laughs> that's literally the only thing. I don't think I did too good. I think that's what he said. And, and you know, Dick Barber was going, don't be ridiculous. Um, he yeah. did incredible. And he did. It was an extraordinary drive um, by anybody. But for someone who was a complete amateur um, to come over to a circuit like that, which he'd never seen before, in an environment mm. like that where everybody wanted a piece of him, in a car like that, in conditions like that, in a race like that, I mean, I think that is one of the great Le Mans stories. Um, mm, so, yeah, so they came second. So 935 um, won it in 79. And then, yeah, I guess the GT198 won it in 1998. Um, mm. But it was only really the front end of that car um, was a 911. I mean, it was a mid-engine car. It was, it was basically a prototype. It was one of those prototypes which... Um, clings to a fig leaf of production car reality because because someone at Porsche has been unbelievably cute with the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And they called it a 911. Uh, and, it, you know, it had a flat six engine and the front end of it was genuinely, or well, by then it would be 996 base, wouldn't it? But, um, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't think there'd be too many interchangeable components. So, yes, it won them all twice. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So how many of these 911 or 911 derivative racing cars have you driven? Which ones stand out? Well, I've been really, yeah, I have been quite lucky. Um, so the first one I the earliest one I drove was a, a beautiful short wheelbase 1965 car, which I did a little more classic in in 2010. Um, I was a bit nervy about that, um, just because, you know, you, you, even in your head, you know all these stories about how you know, tricky these cars are to drive. You know that they're largely illusory. You're still, you know, as you head out down the Mulsanne Strait for the first time, um, a bit sort of, I wonder what this is going to be like. Um, and actually, the car wasn't good. Um, it was weaving around and it was aerodynamically unstable. Um, until so I can't remember, somebody who raced these things years said, yeah, put the spare wheel back in the nose. Mm, yeah. And so we did that. And then it was just good as gold. And that was fantastic. That was a really, really, that was a really lovely car. Um, and then um, after that, well, I've driven a 911R. Um, I've driven the original prototype 911R. I drove that at Brands Hatch years back. Um, which was it, well, it, it was amazing, but it wasn't the sort of um, drive where you can really just fling it about because I think we had noise issues and the owner didn't want me to do too many laps and that sort of thing. So although I have driven it, I drove it quite hard. It's not one of the sort of most memorable experiences that I've had um, in one. I've also done things like I've driven Moby Dick, but you know, up the hill at Goodwood, 
Um, mm. So how much can you really learn from an experience like that? I mean, it was an amazingly fun thing to do. And I remember the ridiculous amount of lag. I've driven baby as well. Do you remember the 1.4 litre car they made to get no. it under the, underneath the two litre homologation um, thing? So that's the car with the most lag of any car I've ever driven. It was 1.4 <laughs> litre car. I think it had 450 horsepower. And I wow. remember leaving the line. This was, it was only a few years ago, leaving the line at the bottom of the Goodwood Hill and genuinely thinking I'd broken the car because it was just going... And just as I got to the point where I would have braked for the first corner, except I wasn't going fast enough to need to, suddenly all the boost arrived. Um, And it was was quite good fun after that. Um, I think probably the most sort of, I hope it's interesting, certainly to me, most instructive sort of comparison I can do was, I can provide, is that I drove... Um, not quite one after the other, but in reasonably quick succession. I drove a cup car, so that like the, you know, mm. the standard, if there is such a thing as a base race 911 offering, um, mm. and the RSR 19, so the ultimate racing Porsche 911, um, in, you know, in quite quick succession. And they were, despite the fact that they were both 911s, they were as different, as different, as different can be. Um, so before you tell us what they were like, yeah. let me just jump in because yeah, so these are modern cars. Yes, um, or, you know they. I think this was only a couple of years ago that you did this. Yeah, they so, were so okay, so the, so the Cup car was a nine nine one. It was a couple of years ago. It was the last of the nine nine one cars. So it's not the so yeah. they now race nine nine two based cars. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the the Cup car is um, it, it's it's technically a GT three car or it's built to GT three regs, but it's not. It's only built as a one-make racing car, isn't Correct. it? So they're not full GT3 spec at all. No, 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 um, not at all. And, and, and the thing about them is that they have, they're totally analogue cars. So they have very little downforce. Although they've got a big mm. wing on the back, they really don't have much downforce. Um, yeah. But much more importantly, they have no traction control, no stability control, mm. no ABS. You are mm. completely on your own in there. That is a quite frightening prospect, actually. And then compared to the 911 RSR, which is the one that, um, won at Le Mans last year. Yes. Um, so they're not running this year. I think the GTE category is gone, isn't it? So um, until last year, this was Porsche's. Yeah, I mean, I think the point highest is, level factory is, racing is that Porsche is putting its its efforts into its LMDH car. Um, and yeah. So yeah. I don't know if they're going to be private RSRs there, but they, but they won't be Porsche. They won't be a Porsche factory team in that category anymore. No. And the, but the the 911 RSR is a very different car to the 911 Cup car. Um, it's got much more aero. It's got more systems. It's, I think it's probably got ABS, isn't it? And it's got traction it's got control, switchable, it's got absolutely everything. It's also got yeah. its engine in its, within its wheelbase. It's a mid-engine car. That's how so different that's, it is. That's what I wanted to discuss. I mean, does that make it feel, apart from all the other differences, does that make it feel like a totally different prospect to the Cup car? Well, it, the car felt like a totally different prospect to the Cup car. How much of that yeah. was the engine how much of, i mean i i would be surprised if a cup car and a rsr19 had more than 10 percent component commonality mm. um you know one is a car which costs i can't remember i think a cup car costs sort of like early six figures um an rsr19 is a million pound motor car all day long unbelievable yeah, yeah. um yeah, and very different yet despite that i don't think an rsr because of the regs and the restrictor i don't think an rsr 19 has got any more power than a cup car mm. um but to drive them but, but seconds quicker presumably around dozens conventional of seconds quicker yeah. i mean just yes yeah. and 
Porsche described the RSR9. I saw this in a in a bit of bump they gave us. They described it as a single seater racing car um, designed wow. to comply with the FIA sporting regulations for that category at Le Mans. That was their approach. Was they they created a single seat? And when they I was showing around it, I asked them to point out parts which had come from the 911 road car and I can't remember the name of the guy who was showing me but he pointed to the badge on the front (laughs) and he said this is the same as with the GT3 RS and he pointed to the rear lights and I said well the rear lights that he said the same and he said no not the rear lights the glass that covers the rear lights oh my god and he said so far as he was aware they were the only bits that they had in common wow um and to drive, I have to say, I massively prefer the Cup car. Mm. Um, the RSR19, it, it felt like a prototype. It felt yeah. like a, well, what it was, a purpose-built racing car. And so basically, if you're at my level of ability, um, which is, you know, competent, but hardly going to, you know, win any championships anytime soon, you, you kind of, you, you sit back and you watch the show. And it is amazing, but whatever you can do, it can do it a thousand times better. And you are, you're not quite a spectator, but I tell you what, it's like being a director. You tell it what to do, but it's doing it, not you. You're not an actor. You're not on the stage. Um, you're an operator. And it's unbelievably impressive. It could do things you wouldn't think that any car which looked like that could do. Um, and the downforce is amazing and it's just so unbelievably easy to drive it's so certainly the the speed i was driving which was as fast as i could make it go it was so idiot proof um i never had a moment in it i just sat there thinking wow 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 i just didn't think that cars you know derived from road cars however distantly could could do this um and i got out full of aberration and i haven't really thought that much about it since cup car i think about all the time Mm. it was just such fun it was you have to be on your toes because um you are on your own out there and you know it, it, it you know it's it's slicks and it's you know it's got a, it's, it hasn't got much downforce but it's got some but um the tires they have for those cars um have to be very carefully managed and i just love the fact that it's just you and the car and there's nothing else there's there aren't any safety systems going don't worry we'll you know we'll step in when you run out of talent or whatever and i just found it and i found it so much more intuitive and i suppose it's because my history is in racing old cars um when i looked at the times i did in the cup car so much faster than i thought it was going to be um and i think it's because i just felt at home in there i just felt Mm. that i understood it and the fact that it had no safety system didn't scare me in many ways i quite liked being able to feel where the limits um of the car were and yeah i mean it's it's just absolutely my kind of racing car just fantastically good fun totally dependent on you as the driver to not mess it up um utterly analog all about sort of feel and balance and always involving you're always doing something you're not just sitting there and steering you're always correcting it there's always stuff going on it was brilliant wow that is interesting i i've not driven a cup car um but I understand that they can be tricky things, even spiky little buggers. Um, and I can well imagine that with your background in historic racing, your 
on top of that sort of thing and you're quite comfortable with it as you say but I know that um, on that occasion one of our journalist colleagues um, with less experience but a competent driver um, raced a fair amount a mate of mine he he did crash one um, he, he, was, he, he was he crashed that car he was the next person in it yeah and he did knock himself up a, 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 knock himself about a, a bit didn't he um, so there's no question that you have to treat those cup cars with respect um, because they're not going to nanny you. And I think actually that's the point, isn't it? That is, that's why they build them that way, because they, they want them to be challenging and they want the guys who race those things and graduate into other categories to really learn a huge amount about racing. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's why about, a lot of people it? who do race cup cars successfully go on to do other stuff very successfully yeah. too. And I think, it's, um, I think it would be quite difficult to come to something like a cup car, if you're, let's say your background is in racing modern, modern sort of single seaters um, with you know, huge amounts of aero and tricks and toys and that sort of thing, and then you come into one of those, um, I think you might find it quite difficult and quite alien. Um, whereas, you know, for me, um, who grew up racing cars that if they weren't sliding, they weren't you know they weren't going fast it's you know it, it, it was I wouldn't say it was second nature to me at all but I think I probably was lucky in that you know I, I, I wasn't those when the car started doing that I, I wasn't sort of immediately going into sort of crisis management mode I was mm. kind of a bit more comfortable with it so yeah maybe the the Carrera Cup that's what it's called which the 911 Cup cars run in um, has been running since 1990 and at the end of last year I know you're going to say it's five it's 5,000th 911 Cup car, which is extraordinary for a racing thousand. car. 5,000. And those are just Cup cars. Those aren't racing 911s. Those are just Cup yeah. cars, squad Cup cars, and I think Super Cup cars as well. Um, yeah. You know, Porsche is, you know, they, are, they make more racing cars than anybody else in the world, mm. including companies that only make racing cars. Mm. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It does say a lot. It says a huge amount about how Porsche has been committed to racing for decades. Um, and the reality is, it reflects in the product, doesn't it? But not only not only the GT3 RSs and the GT4 RSs of this world, but in every sports and performance car Porsche builds, there is motorsport expertise and know-how running through it. And quite rightly, you know, the company has been committed to racing for so long, and it shows in the product. You just can't deny that. Where do you want to go from here? I mean, is there some aspect of 911 racing history that we haven't touched on? I think, well, I mean, the thing is, well, it's, it's quite difficult to get to, to, to sort of work out what the right level of detail is. I mean, you, know, yeah. you could really, really deep dive it, but, you know, we've only got a few minutes left and, uh, you, know, you know, and we would time out. Um, I just find the fact that this car has been around for, for so long. Um, it's just, it's, it's just utterly remarkable and I, just, I hope that they keep on making race versions of now i mean you know we know now don't we about there was it the mission r which is mm. the electric sort of cayman based thing with yeah. 1200 horsepower um and i don't know whether that's going to be the kind of car which you know is going to take the place of you know 911 cup car racing in in five years time i suspect it probably will um and so, so I guess the question is, what's the future yeah. of racing for cars like 911s? I mean, I think at a club level, um, I think they'll go on forever. Um, you know, 
I, I go and do the spa six hours every year and you know the car to have in that you know unless you've got an awful lot of money and you can afford a gt40 is a 911 for the same reason that people had 911s a little more in the mid 60s you know they'll get you around they'll look after you you'll have a huge amount of fun and you'll come somewhere um mm. so i think you know and i think if you look at what guys like you know richard tuthill are doing with their ice experiences and the rally cars that they're creating i mean there's a whole other industry that now that you know so many 911s have become historic cars which has sprung up um to service that requirement um yeah but the, I mean, the future is interesting isn't it i mean i just don't know it we, we, as it is with all aspects of of cars you know we just don't know what the future holds but you know i just hope that there are still flat six powered you know porsche 911s racing in it well and also being raced by the factory because they have been for decades um and it would be a shame if that stopped i mean we spoke about the gte class at le mans it's been replaced by a new category hasn't it i think with gt3 based cars now actually i don't know if porsche is entering that with a factory program if not this no it's not i don't think maybe maybe no so maybe the 911 isn't going to be raced by the factory at a very high level any longer that would be a pity it would be. I mean, I think so After much depends on what happens with its LMDH program, um, which yeah. I don't think has been exactly, you know, covered itself in glory so far. Um, no. You know, I think they're sort of like competitive. But, um, you know, if that turns out to be successful and they end up selling lots of customer cars of those because, I mean, I think one of the point about the LMDH car category is that it's an affordable kind of prototype as opposed to mm-hmm. the LMH. Um, and if that turns out to be the next 956 or 962 and they end up making hundreds of them, as they did with the 962, um, then maybe they will feel that there's no great need to go GT racing at the top level. Um, and, you know, mm. let's not forget also that, you know, there's still the GT3R, which is their yeah. GT3 car. Um, yeah. you know, there's still cup cars. There's still super cup cars. I mean, there's a whole um, sort of ladder of 911 race cars. Um, and it probably says more about me than the 911, that the one I enjoyed easily the most was the, the one on the bottom rung. Yeah, <laughs> uh, interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay, well there we go. I mean, we've got a, a listener question coming up in a moment, but that is briefly the history of the 911 in motorsport. Um, yeah, and we got so one, that, we, 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 we've got one more 911 themed yeah. podcast to do, haven't we? Which is like the sort of because we did the we did the old road cars a yeah. few weeks ago, and now yeah. we've done motorsport. And so I think where, where, where did we get to? Did we get to the end of the the air cooled era? I can't remember where. Yeah, we, we did. Air, we did air cooled. That's right. We did air cooled. Yeah, so we're going to do cooled. water cooled in a few weeks. Yeah, um, and that'll be the third episode as we're sort of celebrating the 60th year of the 911. Yeah, um, but that's to that's to come a little bit later on. So before we do the listener question, I am just going to remind you all to rate and review the podcast. Um, and a positive review please thank you um, we appreciate it and please just hit whichever app you use please just hit follow or subscribe um, it's really important that you do that and it helps a lot um, so the listener question this week comes from rob and he wants to know what our ideal road car would be i'm interpreting this as ideal sports car now i'm actually not going to give away an is answer that it? To this. yes so there are no qualifications no so, and we're doing this in the middle of a 9-11 podcast. We are a bit. Um, but I, we're not going to give a definitive answer to this one, and I'll explain why. I think it's a great question. I think it's a fantastic question, something for us to ponder. But I want TI to explore this very subject in more detail. 
So remind right, me, what, I, what is the question? What is your definitive... Ideal, what, what is your ideal sports car for the road? What is your ideal sports car for the road? So while you ponder some of the basics, right? And we're not going to give away too much detail because that would be a shame. Um, I just want to say this. At some point in the near future, I want the Intercooler to investigate this in more detail. And I want to lean on our team of contributors. Because think about it. We've got designers. We've got engineers. We've got a racing driver. We've got enormously skilled road testers. We've got people who understand the sports car market inside out. I think we can apply all of that knowledge and expertise and experience to this very question. Um, But briefly, I've thought about this a lot. And I think my ideal sports car is going to be relatively compact. It's going to be as close to, say, 1300 kilograms as possible. But it is going to have small rear seats. I've got a a child now, so that's totally changed my view on small rear seats. Um, An NA engine, 300 horsepower is plenty. Manual gearbox, supple suspension, understated styling, modern tech inside though, so good AC, a decent stereo, Apple CarPlay. And I think there, in all of that, you've got the bones of what would be just about my ideal road car. You know you have just described a Gen (laughs) 2 rear drive manual 997 GTS coupe. That's it, isn't it? You have just described that car. I'm sitting here with a car in my head sitting here quietly not saying anything and then you just describe it for me yeah 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 it's we're that predictable aren't we but it it, it does come back to the 911 yes. like it or not yeah okay i think okay I, I completely agree with you we should do it but i think we i think we need one little rider on it which is that it can't be a 911 because I, my, my fear is that if you go to all those people and, and because of the 911's versatility, because of the excellence of its design and its engineering, and because how much fun it is to drive, um, maybe for very different reasons, but my fear is that everybody's going to go, well, it's a 911. So I think we should I think do you're it, right. but we'll say... It can't, it can't be a 911 okay, so, so the question is, to all these people, if the 911 didn't exist, hmm. and then ask the question. That would, that, okay. that would then, I think, produce some very interesting answers. So we'll do it, but we, we can't just clone the 911 because the 911 already exists. Um, so, yeah, very interesting one. We're going to ponder this one. We'll kick it around between us, um, and at some point we'll investigate it properly. But, Rob, thank you for asking the question. Um, hopefully you will get your answer in time. But keep your questions coming across. Please. We'll do it again next week. Ask lots. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.